evening, everybody, and welcome back to Mythgard. Where this is the Mythgard Academy. That's not, I think I'm going to soon become even more confused than usual about which broadcast it is I'm starting up. But this is, in fact, the Mythgard Academy and our discussion of the nature of Middle Earth, uh, session number 19, to be precise, on our in our discussion of the nature of Middle Earth. The reason I'm a little bit confused, more confused than usual uh, this evening. Um, Sorry, I'm going to keep glancing. You'll see me continue to glance over here, which is me watching with some paranoia uh, my bitrate because the internet connection here has been dreadful. But so far, so good. We'll see. We'll see. Um, anyway, um, this afternoon, the reason I'm more confused than usual is that uh, this afternoon I launched a brand new broadcast, which is the first thing I wanted to talk about uh, in my uh, announcements here this evening. Um, other Minds and Hands, it is called, a discussion of Tolkien adaptation. And so today we uh, talked about um, lots of things <laughs> today. Uh, we're going to be, of course, we're going to be discussing the Amazon show and the stuff that we get from the Amazon show. But more than that, it's just it's a place to be thinking about uh, adaptation in general and Tolkien adaptation in general, um, where we can kind of confront things people are worried about, discuss things people are looking forward to. And uh, it's it's I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a, it's an important thing for us to be doing. Um, uh, in large part, it's kind of uh, it, it was clear to me over this past weekend that there was a real need for this for this kind of discussion um, to have a place where people can come to just to for it to be safe uh, to discuss these things without anybody yelling at anybody else. Not sure we totally succeeded in the. Uh, uh, not yelling department, but it was fine. I thought on the whole it went fine. Um, but um, uh, anyway, <laughs> it was uh, it was uh, it was it was good, and I think we'll get better as we move forward. So anyway, that was the first thing that's going to happen on Wednesday afternoons. Uh, so six hours before the beginning of this uh, broadcast um, at 4 p.m. Eastern time uh, is when Other Minds and Hands is going to be happening on a more or less weekly basis. That is when I'm home uh, weekly, it'll be happening. Um, and uh, I had a great time looking forward to our next uh, session where we'll have a couple guests on and it'll be good. Well, my co-host should be there, who wasn't able to be there today, uh, and uh, a guest too. So, anyway, it is um, uh, it is much more. Uh, it was uh, it was fun. It was fun, and I'm looking forward uh, looking forward to continuing that. I also wanted to remind folks about our moots that are coming up: Tex Moot and Sunshine Moot in Austin, Texas, and in Florida, respectively. Um, we have those coming up on the 29th and uh, 29th of March for Tex Moot, and the 2nd of April for uh, Sunshine Moot. Um, and I am so looking forward uh, to going to Texas and Florida and seeing what's uh, uh, what's happening there. Um, did I say? 26th, I said the wrong thing. Thank you, Chad. 26th of March. 26th of March and the 2nd of April. Yeah, the 29th of March is like a Monday or something, right? That wouldn't really do at all, would it? Um, yeah, 20, they're both on Saturdays, so you can check my dates. 26th of March and the 2nd of April. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be cool. Um, so um, anyhow, there, uh, there we are. So, oh, I'm gonna. Uh, yeah, people are asking about is the is the 
recording from today going to be posted? Yeah, but it's complicated by the fact that, again, my internet was failing uh, today in a big way. So I'm going to have to upload stuff. Yes, but it's going to, it's going to take a little bit. We have to sort it out. Um, and uh, I will sort it out after this. This is the... <laughs> The first time, actually, I'm sitting down on my computer since I stopped the previous broadcast and dashed off to go pick up my son. So um, I will we'll sort it out. We'll sort it out. Um, uh, anyway, there we are. It's, it is going to go out to our to the, my Tolkien Professor podcast feed as well as where we're going to be pushing the audio uh, for that. But um, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there are definitely some trolls that work in my internet service provider for sure. Like I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm being uh, I'm being syst- systematically undermined here. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll overcome. It'll all be good. Anyway, let us jump back into the text. So you will remember um, this old proa is uh, the theme of uh, tonight's session. So we were talking about the two different ways. Um, we could just going back for a moment. To recall the context of what we were of what we're going to be looking at here, because we're kind of doing half of a you know half of a chapter, um, we were looking at the chapter that begins with the conversation between Manway and Eru um, that Tolkien wrote the couple times he wrote it, um, and basically the conversation is is the one you'll remember in which Manway says to um, uh, to Iluvatar. Uh, yeah, so elves are dying, and we don't know what to do. Um, this seems bad, like that is the separation between we've got these elf fair floating around, right? Um, they can't do much. This doesn't seem right. What do we do? Is there can we can we fix this in some way? How do we how do we help these dead elves, right? Who are not dead because they're still here in Arda, like they do, right? They don't leave, and so they're, um, like, do we do, do do they just hang around until the end of Arda, floating around as ghosts, or do we, can we do something about this? And Eru says, let the houseless be rehoused. Yeah, by all means, let's do something about this. And there turn out, you'll recall, to be two options of how to do this, right? One option is that the elf souls, the dead the fear of the dead elves, right? Who've also these fear who have lost their bodies can get reborn as babies again, right? Can be put back into the birth queue, as it were, and come out again. And that's what we talked about last time. We looked at Tolkien's analysis of this. On the one hand, he loved this idea. Uh, I mean, it, in, in evidenced by the fact that he 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 had that at the beginning, and he kept coming back to it, right? So uh, he had a, a strong attraction. Clearly, um, over the course of decades, this idea that elves are reborn uh, in babies. But when it came to it, the the kind of world building that we see him doing here in this whole stage from the late 50s through the 60s and early 70s, the kind of systematizing, right, making sure everything sort of fits together uh, the, the, that he was doing when he tried to bring in the old idea of elvish reincarnation in unborn elvish babies, um, when he tried to bring that in, he was like, yeah, this doesn't work. This doesn't work on several different ways. And you'll, you'll remember the bullet list that he gave of sort of um, problems um, uh, problems that he uh, that he had, right? But um, anyway, okay, so um, that's, uh, that's one option. The other option was that the Valar should rebuild them bodies, 
right? They should reconstruct bodies for them. And the fundamental concept behind this was that the Fear retained the spirits of the elves, right? The Fear retain the blueprint of their bodies because the body and the spirit, they are destined for each other, right? And not just any old body, that body, right? When an elf is born, the body that they're in and the spirit that they have are bound together, right? Those two things are um, importantly linked. Um, I just realized I forgot to turn on my heat. I'm going to be shivering to death here before the end of class if I'm not careful. Um, anyway, so yeah, uh, so there, he's, he, he says they're, they're, they're bound together, right? And this is a challenge because, and this is one, an, yet another example of how careful Tolkien is when he's thinking through these details, right? Um, it would have been so easy, so easy, just to wave his hand and say, yeah, so, um, you know, uh, the blueprints are there in their, in their, in their minds, right? In their, in their fear. So I got to just follow the directions, follow the directions, build them another, build them another body. How hard can it be? Come on. Right. Are you Valar or what? Right. You build mountains, you build constellations, you know, you design, you know, single celled organisms. You can handle this, right? Here's the instructions, you know, follow the instructions and, 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 and make a body, right? Make them a new body. But he's um, very, um, very careful and very. So he sits down and starts thinking very carefully about what's involved in that. And this is what gets us into metaphysics. The instructions about how to um, uh, the, the instructions of how to. Um, oh, there we go. Sorry. I just realized I'm making mistakes all over the place. No, I think I got things. All right. Um, okay, great. Um, yeah, so... Um, it's, it's more complicated than it sounds, right? <clears throat> do the Valar have the ability to do this? Yes, they do. But what does it mean? So let's go back. We were in the middle of this first section, which is one of the notes, one of the footnotes that he wrote. Uh, and... I'll start reading it again at the beginning, and you'll recall we we began the discussion of this last time. Um, and just notice how, how you know, essentially, his response to like, okay, but how does Valar go about building a body for them? Right. His answer to that starts with, in the beginning there was matter. <laughs> right. And it's like, okay, <laughs> we're going way back to the start here. Okay, fine. All right, let's 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 do it. Okay. But the lore masters tell us that they may be in themselves not wholly and exactly equivalent. That is the stuff, right? So, okay. Some of the lore masters hold that the substance of Arda, or indeed of all Ea, was in the beginning one thing, the Erma, so matter, right? But not since the beginning has it remained one and the same, alike and equivalent in all times and places. So, if we did begin with just, like, if... Eru brings into being matter at the start, like generic matter, right? Then, But then something happens. That's just step one. And it's very swiftly followed by step two, right? Which is differentiating the matter, right? Um, in the first shapings, this primary substance, or erma, became varied and divided into many secondary materials, or nasi, 
which have within themselves various patterns whereby they differ one from another inwardly and outwardly have different virtues and effects. So these are things that we might call elements uh, or compounds or not to use modern chemical vocabulary. Um, at the least, we would call these things different. Um, oh, I want to be careful. Substances is the word I was going to say, but we have to be careful. That's a um, an important word, especially if you're Thomas Aquinas or somebody who reads him, which Tolkien was. So um, we've got to be careful there. Um, okay, okay. Uh, materials. I, you could say materials, I guess, right? But I mean, so we're talking about you got matter. That's all. And now we have water and air and different kinds of rocks and metals and other stuff, right? Um, at the very least, we have elements, right? But probably other stuff as well. And these things have different patterns, right? These secondary materials have different patterns, have within themselves various patterns. What is it that makes rock rock, right? If you've got a piece of quartz, right? You've got a quartz crystal in one hand, and you've got... Um, a cup of water in the other hand, right? You've got Erma in both hands, right? You've got matter. There's stuff in both hands, right? But there's a difference between this piece of Erma in, in, your, in the one hand and this piece of Erma cupped in your other hand, right? One is quartz, one is what we call quartz, and one is what we call water. Um, how can you tell the difference? Well, in two different ways, right? On the one hand, they're going to have different virtues and effects. That's the thing you're going to notice right away. Remember, a virtue just means a, a power, an ability to do things. So, for instance, like water has, you know, viscosity. Like it, it's liquid. It, it's liquid at room temperature, right? So it, it like will run away from you if you're not careful, whereas the quartz more or less stays put, right? Crystalline structure. That's a, an example of the different virtue of it. It has different effects, right? Like take each thing in each hand and chuck it at somebody's face and you'll notice, I don't recommend it, you'll notice that it has a different effect, each one of them, right? Different effect of the crystal of quartz hitting somebody in the face and cup of water hitting somebody in the face. Um, different virtues and effects they have. But notice that he begins by saying they have within themselves various patterns. That's an explanation of why, right? The, the observation of their outwardly, of their outward virtues and effects that's an observation of them from the outside, right? That's merely stating what can be seen to be by observation. We can see that, Chris, that quartz has these qualities and water has these other qualities, right? Um, but the patterns, that's... How he's talking about the internal, like, why it is. Why is it that water is the way it is and quartz is the way... Both are matter, right? Again, to use our quasi-modern, um, again, modern except not totally modern, um, at least as modern as most of us have caught up with modern-day physics. Um, you know, like they're both made up of electrons and protons assorted in various ways, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, they have different patterns, right? And it's those patterns which cause them to have different virtues and effect, which in fact cause them to be different materials, different nasi. Right? So it's the reorganization of the Erma, uh, the assigning of these new patterns to them, which makes them secondary materials. Notice we're still just talking about 
the rawest of raw materials here, right? We're not even building anything yet. We're certainly not talking about organisms yet. We're just talking about stuff. Okay, keep going. Insofar, therefore, as the separate Nasi materials maintain their characteristic patterns within, all fractions of the same Nasi are equivalent and indistinguishable with regard to higher forms may be said to be the same. Okay, so if, if do you see what he's, what he's saying here? Take your cup of water, right? Take your cup of water and divide it into two half cups of water. Right, so you got that, that same cup of water, and now it's two half cups of water, right? Um, those two half cups of water are equivalent and indistinguishable. And so some people would say two half cups of water, that's the same. It's, they're, they're, those, those two things are the same, right? But, he says, but the Valar through or by whom these variations were affected, it's caused to be, effected, not affected, not um, impacted, right, or, or altered or something. Effected means caused to be, right? But the Valar through or by whom these variations were effected as the first step in the production of the riches of Ea, and who therefore have full knowledge of the Nasi and their combinations, report that there are minute variations of pattern within one Nasi. Okay, so the Valar are experts on Nasi, secondary materials. Why? They invented them. This, notice we get this little glimpse here into how creation worked, right? Um, you, you see? Apparently, Iluvatar causes the Erma to be, right? He is the one who brings something out of nothing. He's the one who creates matter from the void, or, you know, in place of the void. Where there was void, now there is Erma, now there is matter, right? But then the Valar start their job. And imposing the patterns upon particular bits of Erma in order to make them into different secondary materials... That's what they did. They were the ones through or by whom these variations were affected as the first step in the production of the riches of Ea. So again, when we see in the Aino Lindale, Iluvatar saying, um, you know, allowing them to um, use their own, express their own thought, right, uh, in their music. This is what that means. This is what that looks like. And then he says, Behold your minstrelsy of the vision, right? And then we get it again with the actual creation of matter and the shaping of Arda, uh, of Ea and Arda in Middle-earth. Um, so Olmo, presumably, um, uh, Olmo presumably invented water. Like, that's his, that's his bag, right? Um, he invented the pattern that we call H2O. Right, and he—he's the one who imposed that pattern upon. Like I, I'm he doesn't say that here, right? I'm project. I'm combining what he's saying here with what we see in the Ainu Lindale, right? And what uh, Omo says in the Ainu Lindale. Um, but that's how it seems to be working. That kind of thing seems to be how uh, uh, what we're talking about here. 
But notice, when you ask the Valar, who are experts who know more about Nasi than anybody else, because they, they invented them, they're the ones who imposed these patterns, what do they tell you when you say, hey, uh, hey, Omo, I got two half cups of water here, right? This is the same, right? These, uh, this, this water, that water, it's, it's, it's the same, right? Same amount, same substance, two identical cups of water, Omo? What's Omo going to tell you? Uh, they report, the Valari says, report that there are minute variations of pattern within one Nase. It's not uniform. Not all water is the same, apparently. These are very, these are very rare. And their origins or purposes the Valar have not disclosed. Yet it can thus happen that in comparing a quantity of one Nase with another equal quantity of the same Nase, the subtle in skill may find that the one quantity contains unechtar, the smallest quantities possible in which the interior pattern that distinguishes it from other Nasi is exhibited, varying somewhat from the norm. So unechtar, so this is, he, that's the, what he's defining in the uh, parentheses there. An unetar is the smallest quantity possible in which the interior pattern that distinguishes it from other Nasi is exhibit, exhibited. So again, in our vocabulary, we would call that a molecule or an atom, right? Depending on if it's a compound or an element, right? Um, that's what he's talking about. The smallest con in which the, that pattern, you can tell it's water, right? If you split it down too far, it doesn't even look like water anymore. Now you're just getting into the, into the raw materials of the raw materials, right? You're, you're like, you know, splitting atoms and that kind of thing, right? Um, um, we're not talking about quarks. We're talking about molecules, essentially, right? Um, and when you look all the way down at the individual unectar, these, the, these tiniest, the smallest possible quantity, and when you look at it, unetar by, it's, that's not, that's a plural. I don't know what the singular is. Uneta? I, I'm not sure. Somebody who knows more Quenya than I, which is low bar, um, should tell me what the singular of that is, because I think that that's plural. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, when you study, so Omo, you gave, we show Omo our, our two half cups of water, right? And he looks at our two half cups of water and says, you know what? If you look at, the cup of water on the left, molecule by molecule, what you'll notice is that there's like two molecules in the left-hand cup, which are not actually identical to the rest of them. There aren't any in the right-hand cup. The ones on the right-hand, are all they're all normal, right? But there's two that are a little, a little different. A little different. There's something, there's something odd. There's a variation in those. Why? We don't know. The Valar haven't disclosed that. What is the origin of those variations? And what's the purpose of those variations? It's not been disclosed, right? We don't know. We don't know. Um, is, yeah, see, I'm not sure. One always has to be careful in assuming that Tolkien knows nothing about science because um, he doesn't know nothing about science. Um, and of course, it was, you know, it's been pointed out by many scholars over the years that the whole kind of like um, academic and intellectual climate at Oxford, especially uh, at the time when Tolkien was there, um, there were a lot of, you know, 
symposia and opportunities for faculty of other colleges to talk. Like basically, a lot of things that he would have been able to be exposed to a lot of things that other colleagues in other departments were thinking about and talking, including his scientific colleagues. Um, so uh, it's never safe to assume that Tolkien is ignorant about anything that was kind of in the air, um, you know, in the, at the time, you know, so like in the, you know, forties and fifties or whatever. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, um, uh, yes. And Mr. Dennis, you were right. Uh, yes. Uh, Michael, I agree that, um, he's reminding us that the new sun centric story, remember he's, he's ditched the flat earth. Why did he ditch the flat earth? Why did he make the sun and moon there from the, Why have we lost, you know, the last fruit of Telperion and the, or sorry, the last fruit of Laurelin and the, and the, and the last blossom of Telperion? Why have we lost that? Um, whole myth, right? He's jettisoned that. Why? To gain what did he jettison it? To gain compatibility with modern science is what that's, uh, that is the prize for which he has sold the flat earth and the last fruit of Laurelin, right? Um, and not, not all of us think that it was a purchase that was worth the price, uh, but <clears throat> he's, he's made that transaction at this point. So, Michael, I, I agree, that's important. It's important to remember that um, there is a sense in which this version of um, this version of the whole Silmarillion project, right, um, has well, I can't say at its root, but pretty near square one, that premise of this needs to be reconciled with modern science, right? Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so I agree. That's that's important. Um, yeah. Now, Michael Basile is saying clearly this suggests that Tolkien is saying that elves know about isotopes. Um, <laughs> and Michael, I, I'm not surprised. Michael's saying yet another data point in favor of the legendarium was written as science fiction hypothesis. I, I hear you. Mike did a, a an awesome. Uh, presentation at MythMoot was it last year? Year before? I thought it was the year before, wasn't it, Michael? Um, where he was, uh, uh, you know, showing that. In fact, Michael, I was quasi quoting you. I wasn't exactly quoting you, but I was alluding to you uh, in one of my broadcasts the other day. Um, they all run together now. Um, when I was saying that um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from elf magic, so uh, that's I was thinking of you there, um, but. Um, Anyway, anyway, okay. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so maybe it's not inappropriate to be translating Unetar's molecules in our head. I, I always try to be care careful about imposing external vocabulary on the text like that. It's easy to go astray when you're doing that, but it, it sounds like that's what he means. Okay, but we don't know why. We don't know why they did this. The Valar made some things different. But what's the point? Why do we care? Why are we talking about it? Why does it matter if there's a few molecules in one of the cups that are a little bit different from the rest of the molecules and that therefore you can say, well, technically that cup of water is not exactly the same as that cup of water. Like, why does that matter? I mean, it's a tiny little difference, surely, right? 
Um, but notice where he goes on. Or both qu quantities may contain the variant unetar, but in different numbers. Okay, so like maybe you've got like three of them in one of the cups and two of them in the other, right? Okay. In such cases, the two quantities will not be precisely equivalent, though it may be held that the difference between them is so incalculably small that their virtues as materials for the making of embodiments of living, living patterns is indistinguishable. It might be, you might think it doesn't matter. You might think it doesn't matter, but do you begin to see how this is relevant to the question of rehousing dead elves? You see how this comes in? The impression that I'm already beginning to get is that those blueprints are very specific indeed. Remember, he was emphasizing that the spirit is not just tied to a body. It's tied to that body. And it's not just the design, right? Blueprint, sure. Sure, it's a blueprint. But you don't just have to have the blueprint. You've got to have the materials. And not just equivalent materials. It's not enough just to say, like, okay, your house burned down, um, but it was a wooden house, and we have the blueprints of your wooden house, right? So we're going to rebuild a new wooden house exactly like your old wooden house, um, and, and you'll never notice the difference. But they will notice the difference. Because it it's not even just about being wood. It's not even just about being the same wood. The implication is that if it's not built from the same trees, it's not going to be the same. And the Fea will notice. And the Fea will notice. Yeah, it, you could also say, uh, Mike, it's like saying the new house is wrong because this log has a knot in the wrong place. And by the way, I know people who would totally notice that. <laughs> Right? This is not far-fetched. <laughs> this is not far-fetched. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, Cecilia, do you see what I'm saying about how the two cups of water... So, it would just back up to the cups of water again. So, yeah, Cecilia, exactly. We're showing Olmo, right? We're chatting with Olmo here, right? And we turn on the tap, and water's coming out. And we have two cups... We fill two cups of water from the same faucet... Right? Same temperature, same amount, same material of the cups. Are they the same? Is it, are, is it the same? The, the water. Even if the cups themselves, they're, they're two separate cups, right? But the, it's, it's the same, right? No. No, because again, molecules might be... There might be some molecules in the one that are different from the other. Seriously. Seriously. Yeah. Um... The difference between them, so incalculably small. It seems like it shouldn't matter at all. But when you're talking about material that's going to be used for the making of embodiments of living patterns, well, attention to detail is apparently required. Let's keep going. Okay. Um, notice, watch where he goes with this after, after this. He says, though it may indeed be part of the nature of the living thing to use certain materials and not to use others in the development of its pattern. Okay, so now a living thing has a pattern, too. So we've taken one jump forward. We were talking about the patterns, the basic patterns of Nasi, 
it's themselves, right? Materials. And so like they get the difference between water and quartz, right? But there are patterns and then there are patterns, right? Those are patterns. The difference between water and quartz. They have set, they have different patterns, right? But then you take those patterns and you make patterns out of them, right? You take these elements, these substances, these materials, and you combine them together according to another pattern and what do you get? Bodies, right? A body, a living creature has a body, and that body has a pattern, right? Very, very complex, very, very detailed pattern integrating all of these different materials together, right? Um, and it, it may be part of the nature of the living thing to use certain materials and not to use others in the development of its pattern, right? So it's, it's, it's incorporating stuff, and this makes all kinds of sense, right? What happens if you swallow that lump of quartz, assuming it's small enough, right? You swallow that lump of quartz. Is your body going to incorporate that? Are you going to now have crystalline structure? No, no, you're just going to poop it out the other end, right? Your body is not going to use that material in the development of its pattern. Not interested, right? Um, some materials will be incorporated, are, are part of the, the pattern. Some of them are not, right? Okay, fine. This is because the living patterns... Now, keep in mind, remember what a living pattern is. A living pattern means... The, that's the blueprint, right? The shape of a thing. Not just its outer shape, right? But the whole plan for how you put substances together. The whole formula and blueprint of a living creature, right? This is because the living patterns, though conceived, as it were, outside Ea, were destined to be realized within Ea having respect to the, to the qualities of the Erma and Nasi of Ea. And therefore, select, not by will or awareness of their own good, but by the nature of the unfolding pattern, which is to seek realization as near to its primal and unconditioned form as possible, those materials by which they may be best realized. Okay, do you get that? Let's do that again. His sentences, uh, whenever Tolkien is talking about really complicated things, his sentences get really long. Um... I totally sympathize. I do that myself. Um, but uh, this is why, like, his sentence structure and on fairy stories is, like, massive. But uh, anyway, okay. Um, so, the living patterns are conceived outside of Ea. They don't just happen, right? Those are imposed. So, somebody thought of a dandelion, Right? Dandelion was uh, was a dandelion was 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 made that pattern of living creature was conceived outside Ea, but it's going to be realized inside Ea. That is, you're going to actually have dandelions growing out of the ground, right? Um, so, since you're going to have actual physical dandelions growing inside Ea according to the pattern of dandelion that's been established outside of Ea, right? The idea, the concept of dandelion, right? We drew up the blueprint, right? On the, on the celestial drawing board, right? But now it's time to implement Operation Dandelion within Ea, right? And what do we see? We see that as the dandelion grows, it selects, it selects those materials by which it may be best realized. 
again, it's 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 it won't. You know, some things it won't take in. Other like you're not going to find a dandelion which just was like I'm gonna I'm gonna incorporate crystalline like quartz structure into my like and I'm gonna and you just like oh look that dandelion growing over there seems to be made of quartz like it's not gonna happen, right? Dandelions are they're all gonna be the same, and they're gonna be made of the same kind of stuff because they're all growing according to that same pattern. So the pattern chooses, the cha- the pattern selects selects. Notice he puts the word select in quotation marks, um, that the living patterns select those materials by which they may be best realized. Um, But they're not actually choosing. The pattern of dandelion is not a conscious thing. It doesn't have will, nor does the dandelion itself for that matter. Right? Um, So it's selecting... Not, he specifies, by will or awareness of their own good, right? The dandelion is not like, no, I mustn't. I mustn't partake of that quartz because it's not good for me, right? I'm going to be a good dandelion. That's, that's not, that's not, uh, it's not a virtue in the dandelion, right? To, uh, to not consume quartz crystal and make it part of itself, right? Um, no, it says, uh, he says, not by will or awareness of their own good, but by the nature of the unfolding pattern. It's just what happens, by the nature of the unfolding pattern. What is the nature of the unfolding pattern? It is to seek realization as near to its primal and unconditioned form as possible. It's trying to fulfill the pattern. But of course, not every dandelion looks alike, right? Why, why is that? Well, because they don't all grow under the same conditions. Some of them more perfectly, some of them less perfectly, are able to realize their theoretical pattern, right? Um... If you've got one dandelion that's growing in bad soil and another one growing in very rich soil, they'll look differently. They're both trying, in quotation marks, to achieve the fullness of the pattern that was conceived for them outside of Ea. But, you know, there are differences, right? Um, okay. Um, so, all right, all right. Um, and thank you for being patient as I work really slowly through this stuff because I'm trying to make sure I'm following uh, carefully. See what I'm noticing? I didn't really notice this when I was reading it before. But um, do you see what, uh, what philosopher is Tolkien doing business with here? Can you, can you hear? Can you hear a certain Greek lurking in the background? behind this, because um, I think I do hear a certain creak in the background. Yeah, I, I'm hearing Plato also, Michael. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Plato's idea of forms, right? So Plato's idea was that... <laughs> sorry, that's a funny word to use. Um, there are these things that are called ideas or forms, right? That there is like the form of the dandelion um, that exists outside of... Um, you know, like it's exists outside of the physical world, right? And that all actual dandelions are only shadows of the form of dandelion that exists out there, right? Um, and uh, um, we can see him applying a similar kind of idea, right? Um, once again, we, you know, I, it's all in Plato, I was saying last time, and we see it's kind of all in Plato again. Um, this idea of the living pattern being conceived outside of Ea and then realized within Ea. It's not identical, 
to the platonic idea. Um, but it has a lot of connection to it, I think, anyway. Um, uh, okay. And yes, Jocelyn, I've been thinking of Watership Down, too, the whole time I've been talking about dandelions. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's one of the bonuses, right, of that particular metaphor I arbitrarily chose. Let's keep going. So he had ended by saying that they're selecting, uh, sort of, you know, quote unquote, selecting those materials by which they may be best realized. And he puts best in quotation marks, too. Now he's going to expand on that. Best, but not perfectly. That is, not in any case exactly according to the conceived and unrealized pattern. No actual dandelion actually fulfills the living pattern conceived outside of Ea, the dandelion pattern, right? They all, they all try. They all do their best, right? They all strive towards that, but, they, but, but not perfectly. There is no perfect dandelion uh, in, uh, in Arda, right? Um, the only perfect dandelion is the one in conception outside of Ea. Okay, but such imperfection is not an evil, necessarily. Yeah, that don't 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 think that that means it's it's bad, right? Bad in a way, um, for it does not seem that Eru designed Ea so that living things should each in their kind exactly exhibit the primal life pattern of that kind, and that all members of one kind, as say beaches, should be exactly alike. This is really fascinating. We might have been tempted to say. Okay, I see where he's going with this, right? There's the there's the perfect pattern, living pattern that's conceived, but within art, it's art. Art is marred, right? Within art, marred. Nothing can really achieve the perfection that was conceived for it. It would have been tempting to come to that conclusion after the first couple sentences there, right? But you notice what he's going on to say? No, no, actually, no. What is the logical consequence of saying that in Arda unmarred, had Arda never been marred, imagine the perfect Arda, right, without Melkor's discord or, or any trouble at all. What would things have looked like? Say beech trees. We can shift from dandelions to beech trees because that's Tolkien's metaphor here uh, or his illustration. If you had a world in which every example of the beech tree perfectly lived up to, right, grew perfectly into the ideal beech tree, if they all matched the pattern perfectly, what would you have? What would you have? What would you have if, if every dandelion was perfect and every beech was perfect? Exactly. Exactly, Mary. They would be precisely like clones. It means that every beech tree in the world would be identical to every other beech tree. Exactly identical. Every dandelion, exactly the same as every other dandelion. Because they all have the same pattern. And Tolkien here suggests that imperfection, the imperfection that we see, is not an evil. It's not necessarily an evil. Sometimes, of course, it can result from evil, potentially. 
right? Arda, the marring of Arda is going to have an impact, certainly, on how well living things are able to grow up to fulfill their living patterns, right? But the imperfection is not necessarily an evil. It does not seem that Eru designed Ea so that living things should each in their kind exactly exhibit the primal life pattern of that kind. It is not at all obvious that he wanted that. Infinite variation happens because of the imperfection of the growth, because the conditions under which the two dandelions are growing are not identical. Maybe they're both good. It doesn't have to be, there's, it doesn't have to be evil. It doesn't have to be marred, right? They're just different, right? Both under great circumstances, but maybe one is on the top of the hill where there's more wind, and the other one is at the bottom of the hill in a sheltered place where there's less wind. Are they going to be identical? They're not going to be identical because the circumstances are not exactly the same, right? So there's always going to be, there's going to be something that's going to uh, introduce variation, um, in, introduce in this theoretical sense imperfection, not quite reaching the living pattern, the shape of the living pattern. Okay, all right. I think I'm with him already so far. But now let's keep going. Rather, his design is more akin to the art of the incarnate. It's more like how elvish and human artists operate, in which the pattern conceived may be endlessly varied in individual examples and according to the chances of materials and conditions in Arda. You can... You can make, you know, if we don't think about two cups of water, but instead for a second, think about um, two chairs, right? Um, you think of two chairs, right? And um, you can use the same wood. You can use the same design. They're not going to be identical. Right? They can't really be completely identical. Um, because, as he says, uh, according to the chances of materials and conditions in Arda, right? Um, you know, the one piece of wood, it's from maybe even from the same tree, but, you know, its grain is going to be not exactly the same. It's not going to look exactly the same. Um, the conditions might be maybe it was colder. You know, when you're and that and or less humid, and so the wood responded differently. Like it's, it's going to vary. I mean, anybody who, um, anyone who's done any baking is familiar with this kind of thing, right? Um, I'm not a baker myself. I love to cook. Uh, I am the main primary cook for my family, um, but baking always. I I don't bake. Uh, I try not to bake. My wife bakes. Uh, she's a good baker. I'm not a good... I don't have the temperament for a baker. I'm like, I did exactly the same thing and it came out completely differently. What the heck, right? I, I'm, I'm I always struggling with this particular... Um, uh, the chances of materials and conditions in Arda when it comes to baking. Um, yeah, Devorah says pottery is another good example. Clay is never the same twice. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've never done any potting. Uh, is, that what, is, that, is that the verb? Potting? Does one pot? Is that, is that, is that, I, I've never been quite sure about that. Um, yeah, good. 
Christopher says brewing is the same way. Exactly. Exactly. That's, uh, uh, that is, that is exactly what, um, um, that is exactly what the, um, uh, what he's talking about when he's talking about the art of the incarnate, right? All of these things, all of these things that, uh, that we do, we, we, we see that this is the case. And so notice what he's saying here, right? His design, Eru's design is more akin to the art of the incarnate in which the pattern can see. So it's, it's, it's like that. Endless, endless variation. Endless variation happens. Now, Cecilia, this is not, uh, I, you're saying you, you, you think that this is a, this is sort of a, I don't know, like a dumb question or whatever, but it's not at all. Um, Cecilia says, you know, I hate to ask this, but aren't these ideas kind of obvious? Um, you know, like, why go over this? It's a great question. First of all, if you're reading something like this and saying, right, well, obviously, then the author's doing a good job, right? Uh, when you're writing, philo- when you're doing philosophy, um, the experience that you want your reader to have, <laughs> ideally, is, yeah, sure, of course, yeah, well, that's like a no-brainer, right? If someone is, re- if you're writing philosophy and someone's reading it and saying that, then you've won. <laughs> That's what winning looks like. Um, but no, he's, he is, what he's doing is going back to these basic premises. He is indeed stating things which are not at all shocking. What he's doing is going back and, and looking through these things and pointing out things which are themselves simple, but which have implications when you're thinking things through rigorously for other things later on. So he's still kind of establishing uh, things, uh, in this, uh, uh, in this way. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, but we're still not done here. Okay. Uh, to perceive the patterns and their kinship through living variation is a chief delight of those who survey the wealth of the living things of Arda. So Elvish scientists, right? Elvish natural philosophers perhaps would be a better phrase to use, to use the older phrase rather than the modern one. Um, Natural philosophers among the elves, uh, and presumably humans as well, but um, we're still pretty elf-centric, I think, in this writing. Um, What is the chief delight of elvish natural philosophers? To perceive the patterns and their kinship through living variation is a chief delight, right? By studying, it's good that no two beech trees are exactly alike, right? But by studying many birch trees. Birch, I switched from beaches to birch. I always get uncomfortable. Tolkien loves beech trees, and he talks about beech trees all the time. But I'm very self-conscious about talking about beech trees because, um, unlike Tolkien, I'm working in an audio uh, environment, and he was working in a written environment. And when I say the word beaches, I always feel like, Everybody is picturing a strip of sand next to the ocean, uh, so I'm always feeling self-conscious about using the beach as an example um, for this reason. It is true, beach trees are pretty majestic in England. I'm not, like, saying I can't understand why Tolkien did love beach trees so much. I'm just saying it makes it hard on me when I'm reading it aloud and, and talking about it. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry, that's enough complaining for me. Um... Uh, yeah, why couldn't it be the larch, Christopher? Exactly. The larch. 
Um, <laughs> and Mike and Christopher are both thinking of that same thing. Um, but, uh, but anyway, okay. Okay. Anyway. Um, so elvish natural philosophers go around studying beech trees. Why? Because by looking at many beech trees, which are none of them identical, but all of them following or trying to follow the same pattern, right? By looking at lots of them, you can begin to perceive and to understand the living pattern itself. You can begin to understand what beech trees are like supposed to be, right? And you can then begin to understand to like have a closer relationship with that beech tree. Because by looking at it, once you have a sense of what like the shape of beech tree, the pattern, the living pattern that is the beech tree, right? When, when you begin to get a sense of that, then any individual beech tree is going to be different, but you're going to be able to begin to see how, what it tells, like to, to get to know that beech tree. Why is this beech tree shorter than the other beech trees? Or why is it wider than the other beech trees? Why did, who knows, right? Anyway, it's this, this is perceiving the patterns and their kinship through living variation is a chief delight of those who survey the wealth of the living things of Arda. I think I can understand that. Neither is there a, a fast distinction between kinds and the variations of individuals. So that is like, we're talking about the difference between a beech tree and an oak tree and between one oak tree and another oak tree. He says there's not a fast distinction there. Each tree is an individual. So you've got three trees, right? Two oaks and one birch. Okay, I just did birch again. I don't care. I'm sticking with it. Two oaks and one birch, right? There are going to be similarities you're going to see in, in all three. There are going to be differences, right? They don't draw fast. They're less interested in species the way that we tend to break. We care a lot about if it's a species, right? I think that this must mean that elves never yell at you for calling a tomato a vegetable. I think that's what this means. I'm th I'm th that's a corollary. I think that's a logical corollary to what he's saying here. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, he, he's saying like it's it's because the difference between the two oak trees might be more revealing, more important in some way than the mere difference between the oak tree and the birch tree that are right near each other. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Christopher, I agree. Uh, Christopher is remembering the description of Ents entering Durndingle, how they're different. Uh, some is different as one from another tree of the same kind. Some is different as the different between uh, as between beech and oak. Yes, we see um, uh, we see the whole um, uh, we see the whole thing. We, we see him thinking in exactly those terms, right? In describing Ents at Durndingle. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, okay, okay. For some kinds are more akin to others in pattern and may seem to be only variations of some older and common pattern. Ah, you see? You see what's happening here? So when you study enough trees, you can begin to see, okay, we have... I don't know enough about trees to suggest what might be similar, but let's, um, uh, how about, um, 
hey, let's shift to animals for a second. Um, you look at like a hawk and a falcon. And of course, you can look at two hawks and you can look at two falcons and you can see their individual differences and everything. Um, but you can begin to see some kinds are more akin to others in pattern. So like hawks and falcons are more akin to each other than the hawk is to, say, the hummingbird, right? And so you can, um, if you're an elf natural philosopher, you can begin to see larger patterns, patterns among the patterns, right? Only variations of some older and common pattern. Maybe there was a common ancestor of those two birds of prey, more recent than the one between them and the hummingbirds, right? Do you see um do you see what he's thinking about? Um this is Tolkien's day job, isn't it? This is what the philologist does for a living. Uh looking at the patterns, you know, you've got the patterns in two different words within the same language and the pattern between two different words in two different languages. But when you get to know the patterns, you can begin to see that the patterns of this one language are more similar to the patterns of this other language than they are to this third language. And so you can begin to see patterns and you can begin to understand histories and larger patterns of which those individual patterns are just part of the pattern, right? This, the Valar say, is how the variety of Arda was indeed achieved beginning with a few patterns, and varying these, or blending pattern with pattern. The vow are like, yeah, totally how we did it. Totally how we did it. We started off with a few patterns, and then we were, like, encouraged them to vary in lots of ways, and they did vary over time. Yep, that's Tolkien's concept. Um... If you're thinking, gosh, Tolkien's idea for how these things came about sounds kind of like evolution, doesn't it, though? Yeah, kind of does. Kind of does. Certainly has similarities. Okay. Let's, uh, let's keep going. In this way, therefore, living forms, not imposed, may be distinguished from those given by craftsmen. The living forms grow. But they have at all stages a true form that is name-worthy. Being part of a total shape, extending over time, each instant of their existence partakes in that reality or realization. Okay, so, 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 hang on. See the distinction he's making? We've got... Uh, a chair has a pattern, too, right? It's got a blueprint in the mind of, of the craftsman, right? And it's got stuff that it's made out of. But the chair is different from... The dandelion. I'm going back to dandelions, right? A chair is different from a dandelion. How? Dandelions exist in an arc over time. The living forms grow, and that's part of its pattern, right? You don't have, or, or you know, again, to, to like our a baby hawk, right? A baby hawk, an egg, and then a baby hawk, and then a young hawk, and then an adult hawk, right? Um, they're all hawks. They're all part of that same living pattern. 
The living pattern is not just a blueprint for the adult hawk. That's not what the living pattern is. The living pattern incorporates the whole thing from beginning to end. From, from egg to grave for the hawk. It's a hawk, right? Um, it, is, it, is, it is attempting, trying to be the best hawk it can be, right? To grow into the perf- the, the close to perfect as possible, but it's not going to be totally perfect form of hawk. Um, at all stages, it has a true form that is name-worthy. It's still a hawk, right? Even when it's, like, small and fluffy um, and can't fly. Still a hawk, right? Being part of a total shape extending over time. So the total shape of a living form extends over time, right? All of that whole lifespan of the hawk is part of the pattern of hawk. Each instant of their existence partakes in that reality or realization. We may speak of a young tree or sapling, and of a young man or child, judging the form to be tree or man. But because of memory and experience deeming, not always rightly, that this tree or man is in an early stage of its development. You catch that? He's saying a simple thing, but then he's also making a qualification here. Um, you might look at something and say, like you might look at our, 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 our hawk, right, and say... That's a hawk chick, right? It's just a little chick hawk. I don't know if they have a separate name. Do, do they call baby hawks something else? Is there, Are they just hawk chicks? I don't know. But anyway, you might look at that and be like, oh yeah, that hawk is a chick. It has not yet achieved its final growth, right? Still on the way. Um, it's still, it's, 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 not, it's not finished. Just as you look at this, the small tree and say, that's a sapling. And you might look at a child and say, not yet an adult, right? When you do that, you are applying your knowledge of the pattern, right? Um, really? A young hawk is an aya? E-Y-A? Aya? Aya. Like an iri. Yeah. You live in an irie. That's why it's called an irie? No way. Get out. I suppose it would be, wouldn't it? Right. So you have an aya in an irie. Of course you do. Well, how about that? I'm so glad I used that example. I learned something today. Woohoo. Okay. Um, blows my mind, that does. I never knew where the word irie comes from. Huh. Fascinating. Okay. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Trying not to get distracted by this by this linguistic revelation I've just had. Um, okay. The aya, right? You look at it, and you call it an aya. You call the young tree a sapling. You call the young uh, the young human a child, right? Okay, fine. Um, and, and you judge. You judge. You're like, okay, that that aya is going to become a hawk. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fine. Um, but because of memory and experience, deeming not always rightly that this tree or man is at an early stage of its development. Notice the proviso, right? Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes you might look at something and say, that has not yet achieved its full perfection, but you just don't know, right? What do you know? What do we know, right? I might 
look at a birch tree, which is not huge, right? And be like, oh yeah, someday that's going to grow into a real tree. But no, it's actually just doing its thing, right? It's kind of done, more or less, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so we have to be, you have to be careful. Notice this is why you study things in all their varieties, right? That's why you become an elvish natural philosopher. But anyway, all right, let's keep going. Where was I? Uh, oh, right. But beholding a craftsman making a chair, we should not call its first stage a young chair, right? I mean, like when you when you've just carved out the seat and you're like not begun attaching the legs to it, um, like when it's still sitting there in a pile, right? A seat and a bunch of legs, and you know, it's 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 not it's not a young chair. It's not a chairlet, right? Oh, it's a little chairlet, which is someday going to grow into a big daddy chair. That's not exactly what's happening at all, right? We should say at different moments that he was making something, say, of wood. Like, oh, look, there's some lumber that he's got, right? Um, oh, look, he's made it into, you know, peculiarly shaped rods of wood. How about that, right? That he was making a piece of furniture. Later on, he might be like, oh, look, it looks like furniture. Definitely going to be furniture. And that he was going to make a chair. I, oh, I see it. That's going to be a chair, but it's not a chair yet. Right? When the shape was so far advanced that we could guess this. But we should not call his work a chair until it was finished. So you see the distinction that he's making here. This is the distinction between static patterns, non-living patterns, and living patterns. Living forms. Right? Um... At every stage of our hawk's life, from egg to aya to hawk, um, it's still a hawk, right? Just at different uh, portions of its total shape extending over time. The chair is not a chair until it's done. It's just not, right? Maybe other things, but it isn't that. Um, uh, <laughs> Christopher suggests that IKEA should give us cost breaks on baby chairs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Christopher, I think Ikea is a perfect illustration of how, uh, you can't really call it a chair until it's finished and footnote and assembled correctly, right? Um, have any of you ever put together a piece of assemble it yourself furniture, which you might have guessed was a piece of furniture, but turned out not in fact to be uh, a, 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 an effective form of the piece of furniture that you were calling it to be? Yeah. Okay. Um, thus, when we speak of things named, we must distinguish three kinds. Some have a shape and being of their own, which we did not give, and would exist so even if we did not exist. These are living things, which, though we may use them, have as primary purpose to be themselves. Living things each belong to themselves, just like Goldberry tells us, right? Um, Tom doesn't own the old forest, right? Uh, the trees, the grass, the water, it all belongs to itself. Okay, not the water. Well, maybe in Goldberry's case it would, but anyway, living things, right? If they have a shape and being of their own, which we incarnate didn't give to them, right? Um, and would exist even if we weren't there. That's one category of thing, right? Okay. Second, some have their individuality only in the names given to them by name givers and have only such bounds as the name givers ascribe to them. 
This name-giving is related to the arts of the incarnate. For either the mind of the name-giver, though no work of his hands is involved, selects from Arda a memorable shape that he might have made or might make if he had the skill or power, or he attributes that which he sees as a mountain or lake to the work of a mind that had purpose, such as one of the Valar. You see what the second kind is? The second kind is a thing which has been given a name, but it's not really a, a separate thing. Like a mountain. Right? Um, uh, you name a mountain. Right? Like that. Um, that over there. <laughs> think of which direction I'm facing. That over there is Mount Monadnock. I can't see it from my basement, but it's over there in the direction I'm pointing. Right? Um, there's a mountain. It's kind of a mountain. I'm in southern New Hampshire and on the east coast. It's, it's, it's a hill, but it's a little bit pointy um, and standing all by itself, so it looks impressive. Anyway, Mount Monadnock. Um, we call it Mount Monadnock. But if you ask, say, the squirrels, they're not going to care what you call it. Nor, like, and where does it end? Like, what stops being Mount Monadnock? Do you, you know, do, do, do we draw, we, we like to do this kind of thing, draw lines around things on maps and say this is what that, and na give names to chunks of ground, right? Whereas again, like, the squirrels going across your map lines are, are not going to notice any difference, right? There's no, in, there's nothing intrinsically different about the parts of dirt that I'm calling Mount Monadnock and the parts that I'm calling Pac-Monadnock, which is another mountain nearby, right? Where are the boundaries? Where does it stop? Um, uh, well, JJ, it's not a couple inches above sea level. It's, it's hundreds of feet high. Um, hundreds of feet high. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, you know, Pac-Monadnock, Mount Monadnock and Pac-Monadnock. Um, uh, hey, look, I didn't name them. Um, anyway, they're two mountain-ish things here, right nearby to me. Um, we draw lines on maps and we say that's what, this is what that is. That, that's the kind of naming that he's talking about here. It's a thing, like the mountain is, is it's, like, it's a legitimate thing, right? M mountain Anak totally exists. I didn't make it up and I didn't make it. Nobody shaped it, right? This is not Mount Rushmore we're talking about here. Right. Um, no, this is that's 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 an au natural feature of the terrain. Right. But we've made it a thing. We here in southern New Hampshire have made that a thing. Right. And it's Mount Monadnock. And now I see it across the field. Uh, I was just looking at Mount Monadnock earlier this evening uh, across the uh, across the airfield is a really flat place where we have a little airport where my son learned to fly. And there in the background, Mount Monadnock looks very beautiful at sunset. And I'm like, look, there's Mount Monadnock, right? Um, it's a thing. I didn't make it. Nobody made it, but we named it. And we thought of it as a thing, right? This name giving, it's like the arts of the incarnate. Um, we're kind of making it up, but it kind of legit exists, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Brando, the man in the mountain. Too soon, man. Too soon. Still too soon. Um, uh, as a 
New Hampshire citizen, I totally have like a flashbulb memory of when I first heard about the old man of the mountain. Uh, but anyway, um, never mind. Okay. Um, still, still a matter for tears and not yet for song for me. Um, anyway. Okay. Uh, well, let's keep going. So that's the second thing. The first kind of thing is a living thing, which is a thing all on its own. Right. Um, the second kind of thing is a thing which exists on its own. I mean, it is independent, but we have given it a special, we've given it an identity, right? We've made it into, I mean, it was a thing, but we've made it into a thing, if you see what I mean, right? Um, some, the third kind, have shapes given to them by incarnate minds with purposes belonging to the minds and not to the materials, right? Um, that mountain in South Dakota, it is South Dakota, isn't it? Totally did not have the intention of forming George Washington's face. Right? Mount Rushmore? That was not part of its plan. That was a plan imposed upon it by an artist, by an incarnate mind. Right? That's the third kind of thing. For purposes belonging to the minds and not to the materials. Right? Okay, so you've got a thing actually shaped and formed by an incarnate on the one hand, a thing which grows and is a living thing of its own without any help from us or permission from us. And then there's that middle ground of things which we didn't make them, but we named them and we conceptualized them in a particular way. Um, but since all things in Arda are akin, the form of art respects the nature of the material and should do so. Um, you should respect the nature of the material. Uh, don't, um, you should be respectful when you impose shapes upon things. Not a hundred percent sure. I don't know. Would the elves approve of Mount Rushmore? Not really sure. Not really sure they would. You might be thinking, would they approve of the Argonoth? Not sure they would. Not sure they would. Um, uh, all right, let's keep going. We're making progress here. What does all this have to do with anything? Let's back up and ask for a second what all this has to do with anything. This has all been preparation for talking about the rebuilding of bodies and the challenges involved in the rebuilding of bodies. Okay? Armed with all of this background contemplation about the nature of things and how they work. We shall now be fully prepared to appreciate the difficulties and challenges of remaking, rebuilding somebody's Roa. Okay. For the individuality of a person resides in the Fea. A Fea alone may be a person. In the case of the incarnate, though they are by nature embodied, their identity resides no longer, as it does in things of corporeal life only, in that embodiment, but in the identity of the Fea and its memory. They are by nature embodied, but their identity resides no longer in that embodiment. Not when, So this, we're talking about our houseless Fea again. right? The houseless Fea, it's still the person. It still is the person. The person was embodied, right? But their identity no longer resides in the embodiment. 
but in the identity of the fea and its memory. Okay, a fea of this kind requires a house by which it may inhabit Arda and operate in it. Okay, the houseless fea needs a house if it's going to operate within Arda. Remember, that was the problem. These houseless fear can't operate. Anyway, they can't do anything. They're stuck doing nothing for the rest of the life of Arda, and that's no fun. But a house exactly equivalent is sufficient for it, for it will exactly correspond to its memory of its former house. And that memory, being in the mind only and incorporeal, will not be concerned with the history of the material used in the realization, so long as it is fitted for this purpose, but with the form only. Therefore, returning, the Fea will inhabit the rebuilt house gladly. Do you see what he's saying here? He's encur- This is encouragement for the... This is a pep talk for the Valar. This paragraph is a pep talk for the Valar. Because you see what the Valar are worried about, what Manway's worried about here? But, okay, we can make a new Croa, but, but, but it's, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same. Right? I mean, again, think about the difference between dandelion and dandelion. Think about the difference between beech tree and beech tree. Right? I mean, the one body, the first body, body number one, Hroa number one, the Hroa of this Fea grew with that Fea inside it and under those particular circumstances. And it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be exactly the same. To which the answer is, no, it's okay. The fair remembers. The identity, the whole identity of the person is retained in the fair and in its memory. Okay. Okay. So, all that blue, all the stuff, all the individual quirks, all that infinite variety that we see among all of the different examples of every kind of creature and everything like that, the fair remembers. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, Valar. Um, that's included in the blueprint. Okay, yeah, but um, but but it's not the same substances. I mean, okay, like we can make it out of like you know we can make muscles and skin and bones and stuff like that. Like we we know what muscles and skin and bones are made out of, so we could whip up some you know, what can you call it artificial if the Valar make it? And we can make we we can we can we can bring together, you know, some flesh, to make a house for them, and we'll make the house. We'll design it according to their specs. But it's not going to be the same stuff. There's going to be differences. I mean, like, even if we go down to the molecules, it's different. Like, no matter how much we try to say, remember our cups of water, no matter how much we try to say, like, we're making flesh like as exactly similar to their flesh as possible, but it's not going to be exactly the same. Because at the very least, it's going to be different in time, at a different place in time, Right? And so therefore can't be the same. And so what is the pep talk that the thou are being given? It's okay. It's okay. They'll work with it. The fear, that is, will work with it. But a house exactly equivalent is sufficient for it. Make it according to the specs, for it will exactly correspond to its memory of its former house. And that memory being in the mind only and incorporeal, will not be concerned with the history of the material used in the realization. It, it doesn't matter if, like, the actual molecules in the new body aren't, like, exactly the same molecules that were in the old body. It's okay. 
they're bound together, but it's not that bad. They're not that persnickety. It will not be concerned with the history of the material used so long it is, as it is fitted for this purpose. Don't try to make anybody, you know, um, uh, like if you have a cunning idea of giving somebody like adamantine bones or something like that, not a good idea. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, don't make anything out of vibranium. You know, no, no. Don't get, don't get cute with this, right? It has to be material fitted for this purpose. But if it is, then, um, then the... Uh, um, sorry for my multiple fandom references there. Um, first reference to Wolverine. Uh, second reference to Marvel stuff. Um, I was thinking of... Um, what's his face? Uh, completely blanking. Uh, vision. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. It's not important. It's only concerned with the form. Therefore, returning the fail will inhabit the rebuilt house gladly. It's all going to be good. Even so, one might go. So let's metaphor. Um, one might go on a journey. And while he was away, lightning might come and destroy his house. But if he had friends of subtle skill who, while he was away, rebuilt his house and all its appurtenances, and can I just say, I am delighted. To this, um, to my knowledge, this paragraph is the only place outside of the King James translation of the Pentateuch that I have come across the word appurtenances, um, and my life is the richer for it. Um, uh, cause you, you, in the, as I recall in the King James Pentateuch, we get, uh, um, like in the tabernacle, like the altar and the appurtenances thereof. Um, but, um, anyway, there we go. Okay. So yeah. So, uh, while he was away, rebuilt his house and all its appurtenances that had been ruined in exactly the same shapes, he would come back to his house and call it his own and continue his life there as before. And even if his friends reported to him what they had done, he would... Would he not still be content, giving to the house rebuilt the same name as the old house had, and deeming that the evil chance had been healed? He might even notice the difference, right? But if he noticed the difference, um, if he noticed the difference, he would only um, uh, be more grateful, be more happy, uh, more thankful to his friends for all the work that they did in rebuilding the house exactly the same. So, again, we're still pep-talking. The Valar here. Okay. Um, nonetheless, one of the dead rehoused, with whatsoever regret death may bring, will remain the same person and will inhabit and continue the life of the housing body as if no evil had befallen it. No, to doubt this is as if one were to doubt that a craftsman remained the same person when, just to throw out a theoretical example, after a work upon which he had labored was destroyed, he labored again with fresh material to make that work again, or to finish it. To doubt this, I'll read it again without interrupting myself. To doubt this is as if one were to doubt that a craftsman remained the same person when, after a work upon which he had labored was destroyed, he labored again with fresh material to make that work again or to finish it. So, if you made 
say, some very shiny gems, and somebody, for a very good reason, needed to, I don't know, unlock those gems in order, perhaps it might be, to restore the life of some trees, um, that craftsman would remain the same person afterwards, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Might be. Might be. Um, yeah. Um, the dead rehoused remain the same person. And will inhabit and continue the life of the housing body as if no evil had befallen it. Remember that one of the goals, stated goals of the Valar, in their desire to rehouse dead elves, was to redress grief. It's not right that, you know, a married couple should be divided their entire lives for, you know, hundreds of millennia, right? It's not, it should not be. That should not be. That grief needs to be redressed. And so the reassurance is, it would be. It would be. Um, oh, Nancy, I was throwing shade at Fanor there. Um, Nancy's saying, you know, what would Fanor, like Fanor said he would break, it would, he would break his heart. Yeah, I think I'm throwing shade because I think Fanor was being a whiny crybaby at that moment. Um, and yes, his part of his own fair went out. I'm not saying he could make the Silmarils again, but would he be the same person? Yes, he would be the same person. Um, um, I know that Fanor said that it would kill him if the Silmarils were broken, but I think he was wrong. I think that he is his saying that we're told explicitly that his saying that is him making a bad choice. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I disbelieve Feanor. Um, or rather if his heart had broken, it would be his own fault. Um, again, it would be a product of his choice of his bad choice rather than an inevitable consequence. Like he wants to make out, uh, I think my opinion, my opinion there. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, you're right, JJ. He's just loving with reasonable dearness the work of his own hands, right? Yes, he is, isn't he? Um, but it does seem that there are upper bounds on the 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 quantity of dearness with which, or even quality of dearness with which one should hold the work of one's own hands. And my personal theory is that Feanor exceeded that upward bound, right? That's, that's what I think happened there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, anyway, all right. Um, let's keep going. Talk about the trees. For the pattern of a design extending through a period of time, which therefore at any moment before its completion envisages the future... It has an energy, as it were, impelling the growth to continue the development to its end. Remember that living pattern is the whole life of the living thing over time, right? At the moment of the dissolution of its work, from whatever cause, that impulse ceases. When a living thing dies, 
it's over. Even if it dies premature, you may have a sapling, right? And the sapling contains within it, it's, it is part of a, an overall pattern which is intended to become this enormous majestic oak, right? Um, but then I go through and I say, no, that little oak tree that's starting to grow out of one of the 10 billion acorns dropped on my side yard um, that I missed in the fall when I was raking and it's now rooted, I have to pull that up now because I don't actually want my lawn covered with trees, right? And so there I've just now horribly truncated, so to speak, um, the overall life shape of that particular oak tree. Right. Um, so at the moment of dissolution of its work, the work of that oak tree has been cruelly dissolved by my callous action, right, of uprooting it from my lawn. When, and when that happens, the impulse ceases. It's no longer an oak tree. Right? It's an oak tree as an, when it's an acorn, it's an oak tree. When it's a sapling, it's an oak tree. When it's a tree, it's an oak tree. Right. But when it's a log, it's no longer an oak tree. When it's dead, it's no longer an oak tree. That, I think, is what he's saying here. We may say, if we limit ourselves to the particular thing considered, not involving ourselves with wider or deeper matters, that it was the fate in Arda of this tree to fail of full achievement. Yes. Yes. It's the fate of this tree to fail of full achievement. Um, didn't even grow into a full tree. But... You know, it's, that's the way it was. This may become clearer if we reflect not on premature death, but on the natural death of living things of short duration. If the tree dies, having fulfilled its span, who can remake it? It was, it was both its fate and its nature by design to live so long and no longer. Its pattern is complete and ended. It is all past and has no more future. If the tree does, so like forget about the tree that I pulled up, right? As anyone from the tree's perspective would agree, in an you know untimely. Uh, certainly from the tree's perspective, um, but what if a tree just just dies, right? Um, if when a tree dies, of natural causes, right? It would then it was its fate and its nature to live so long and no longer. Its pattern is complete and ended. It is all past and has no more future. Like, well, not to get too personal, but there's a ladybug right over there, which is pretty much in this state, right? Um, uh, I'm not bothering that ladybug, but it's going to drop dead pretty soon. Uh, you know, it's February. Um, it's, uh, it's not got long. Uh, it is uh, it is fulfilled its span, and we can't remake it. We just can't. Um, when it's gone, it's done. Remake it? Why would we remake it? Well, let's keep going. For this reason, the Valar themselves do not claim ever to remake the same tree, whether its loss be mourned or not but only if they will to restore to the wealth of Arda a thing equivalent. When a tree dies, you got to let it go. You can't make that tree again. This has some obvious relevance also. Maybe Fanor would like this paragraph better than he might have liked that other paragraph. 
whether its loss be mourned or not. You can plant a new tree, but you can't remake the old tree. They do not, that is the Valar, they do not undo history. They don't do it. This cannot indeed be done without the undoing of Arda, without the undoing of Ea, sorry. Therefore, it is only the elves that the Valar can, under the authority of Eru, rehouse. So just because the elves can be rehoused doesn't mean you can go being like, oh, that tree died and I loved that tree. I want to I wanna bring the tree back. No matter how much you love a particular tree, or maybe two trees. For it is their nature not to end within Arda. Those whose nature is to end within Arda, that is, to die naturally, they cannot and do not rehouse, as is seen in the case of men. Men, it's their nature to end within Arda. They cannot and do not rehouse men, mostly, hinder in almost any circumstances. The rehoused Fea will normally remain in Amman. Only in very exceptional cases, as Baron and Luthien, will they be transported back to Middle-earth. How perhaps need not be made any clearer than the mode by which the Valar in physical form could go from Amman to Middle-earth. Don't ask me questions about how they cross the ocean. Hence, death in Middle-earth had much the same sort of sorrow and sundrance for elves and men. But as Andrath saw, the certainty of living again and doing things in incarnate form, if desired, made a vast difference in death as a personal terror. So, again, you've got uh, two sets of husbands and wives, right? You've got two hum a human couple and you've got, a, you've, got a, you've got an elf couple, right? Um, and both, both of them... Both we've you know, both of them lose one of the pair. One of the one of the each pair dies, right? Functionally, in Arda, they're in the same state. Because even if the elf spouse gets a new body, they're not coming back to Middle Earth. In almost any instances, they're not coming back to Middle Earth. So you're here, she's there, you're um you're sundered from each other almost as much as the human couple are sundered from each other when one of them dies, right? Now, he points out Andrath's argument from the Athrobeth um, that, uh, well, you can say, but it, it makes a big difference, right? You're not going to be, the elf is not going to be saying, I'm never going to see my spouse again. Like, sooner or later, <laughs> they can, right? Um, and even just knowing, well, okay, you know, my wife is on the, like, what's the difference between, there is a difference, right? Between the widowed state of Denethor and the widowed state of Elrond, right? Um, Elrond is a widower, functionally, right? Calabrian, she's not coming back. Um, but... Eventually, I'll probably see her again. And in any case, he can still think, well, she's probably okay. I know it's not a perfect example. She didn't exactly die. Work with me. I'm talking about separation from Mid-Earth, right? Um, uh, he can, you know, be comforted the fact that she's still around. I mean, like, infinitely separated from me at this particular moment, but around, right? Still in Arda. Um, 
and there's a possibility of future uh, reunion, right? Whereas Denethor, he's not seeing Fenduilus again. So far as he knows, he's not at all. He doesn't know, right? Maybe humans can speculate or hope that there will be a reunion after death, but they don't know. They don't have any reason to, any reason, any evidence to believe that that's the case. Um, okay. Where was I? Okay. After removal of uh, slash destruction of Amon as physical part of Arda, there could be no return. Destruction? I think Carl's not sure about that word. Another one of those Tolkien handwriting issues, I think. Only way of reunion of bereaved was by death of both parties. Though after end of Beleriand and battle which destroyed Morgoth, the bereaved could voyage to Amon. They usually did. After destruction of Numenor, only the elves could normally do this. Yeah. I don't understand that last sentence. After destruction of Numenor, only the elves could normally do this? Well, of course. No humans could ever voyage to Amon. And if, and if they did, they wouldn't be reunited. Huh. Not quite sure what he's getting at there. Only the elves could normally do this. I feel like I'm missing something dumb. That is, I'm being dumb by missing something obvious. But I don't understand that sentence. Of course only the elves could normally be reunited with their dead loved ones in Amon. Okay, the dead loved ones of humans might be in Mandos, in the halls set apart, which I dislike so much, conceptually. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, they might be there, but that doesn't mean that... Hmm. Huh. We'll see. Yeah, the removal of Amon from the world that only the elves could go to Amon? Yeah, I know. But that was kind of always the case, wasn't it? Again, humans never went to Amon. Or rather, they did once, but it didn't go well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, huh, not quite sure. Okay, we're almost there. Hmm, okay. I can see my internet service provider is telling me it's just about time to end class. Uh, you guys can probably still hear me, though. Let's keep going just a little bit. Uh, two slides and we're done with chapter 15, which was a doozy. Okay. Um, uh, Eru committed the dead of mortals also to Mandos. That had been done long before. Manwe knew they would be mortal. They waited then a while. So Mandos... Or Man yeah, Manwe prepared for this, right? He and Mandos already had a plan in place. Um, they they built the hall set apart, lying and you know waiting uh, in preparation for the coming of humans, whom they knew would eventually come, and they whom they knew would be mortal and would be coming to the to you know their separate dormitory over there um, uh, in Mandos. They waited then a while in recollection, that is, the mortals, not Manway and Mandos. They waited then a while in recollection before going to Eru. 
the sojourn of, say, Frodo and Arisea, then on to Mandos, was only an extended form of this. Frodo would eventually leave the world, desiring to do so. So that the sailing on ship was equivalent to death. Well, from the Middle-Earth perspective, yeah. Uh, it's a one-way trip, right? Um, you can, if you're immortal, in a very few cases, you can go to Amun, but um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, never a, it's never a temporary visit, right? Um, yeah, never a temporary visit. Frodo would eventually leave the world desiring to do so. So he would be healed, and you can tell when his healing was complete. His healing was complete when he was ready to die peacefully and go to Mendos um, and thence to uh, thence to Eru after that. Okay. Concerning dead dwarves. I love this. The matter of the dwarves, whose traditions, so far as they became known to elves or men, contained beliefs that appeared to allow for rebirth, may have contributed to the false notions above dealt with. But this is another matter which already has been noted in the Silmarillion. Here it may be said, however, that the reappearance at long intervals of the person of one of the dwarf fathers in the lines of their kings, e.g. especially Durin, is not, when examined, probably one of rebirth, but of the preservation of the body of a former King Durin, say, to which at intervals his spirit would return. But the relations of the dwarves to the Valar, and especially to the Vala Aule, are, as it seems, quite different from those of elves and men. In other words, nobody knows and understands. Uh, do a fun thought experiment with me. Imagine that in the upcoming Amazon TV series, they had said this and before this book came out. Right? Imagine we didn't have this book. And in the upcoming Amazon series, they had said... This character is Durin the Fourth. Um, he is. He looks exactly like Durin the First, not because he merely resembles his ancestor, but because the body of the dead Durin the Third was cunningly preserved by the dwarves, and reanimated by the returning spirit of Durin later on, and so they're like it's Durin Take Four. Imagine they had done that. They had made that particular choice in the upcoming TV series, which is apparently going to feature one of the Durins, right? Um, can you imagine how people would have freaked out about that? Can you imagine the tirades that would have occurred had they done that, right? Oh my gosh, what mummified dwarves being reanimated by dead spirits? Oh my goodness. I cannot even imagine the turmoil that would have been. But there it is. There it is. Um, mummified? Durin? I... I... I was going to say that I don't understand the preservation... how the preservation works. Like, how do they... how do they... how do they... how do they keep... do they keep them on, on ice? Right? How do they... Does, is it cryogenics? Do they... do they... what... I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, um... Uh, dang. Okay. Those dwarves are pretty mysterious, right? I mean, who knows what they get up to and how they do this. But, um, I don't even have anything to say <laughs> about this other than, whoa. All right, then. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, cool. So there we are. Um, as I recall, I have like, what do I have? Three, I've got five. Okay, too many. Might as well stop. All right, might as well stop. But that is the end. We've gotten through, we didn't quite get to the end of book two yet, but we're so close. Next time, let's figure out what we're going to read next time. For next time, we're going to start part three. And where are we going to, oh yeah, that's right, because the death chapter was really fascinating. That was my problem. I was like, we don't need to talk too much about Furiel and, Furiel and Minway, listen to me. Oh my goodness, all day today. Muriel and Finway, because we talked about Muriel and Finway for like a month and a half, right, when we did Morgoth's Ring. Um, but um, let's let's see. I was really, I'm trying to make up, I'm changing my, my reading schedule here. Let's do, let's do chapters one through three of part three. How about that? So read the first three chapters of part three for next time. We'll do those last two real short chapters at the end of part two and the first three chapters of part three. How does that sound? Right now, keep in mind, next session, not next week. I'm going to be away all week next week. Uh, family vacation. So I'll be away next week um, carrying things for my my uh, wife and son while they ski um, and uh, serving them food and uh, not uh, uh, injuring myself, probably. Watch, I'll be the one who injures myself because I'm not skiing. But anyway, um, thank you for joining me today. See you guys again in two weeks. <laughs> Good night now.